Happy New Year, everyone. Welcome to Inside Independent Publishing with IBPA. My name is Christopher Locke. I'm your host. I'm also the IBPA Director of Membership and Member Services. Okay, so at IBPA, we want to set publishers up for success every year, and we're going to do it again. Uh, we have CEO Andrea Fleck-Nisbet. Uh, she's going to be joining the podcast today to discuss the major issues that publishers are sure to face in the new year and the ways that publishers can overcome them. So here's what we'll be talking about. Distribution challenges, creative ways that publishers could find funding, difficulties with running a publishing business and ways to tackle them, and so much more. And uh, just to start out with, I actually don't foresee any problems in 2024. I don't even know what we're going to talk about. But uh, anyway, glad you're here. <laughs> Thanks, Christopher. Happy New Year. Yeah. And you again. So last year was my... I think I was into my second month at IBPA when we did this. And I was so nervous that I was going to mess up and say something wrong or flub something. And it went okay. So we'll see how it goes this year. Well, you started that podcast by calling me Bill. And I was like, okay, we'll just... I, I did not start the podcast by calling you Bill, but I did call you Chris, which usually you go by Christopher. So I, I was mentally beating myself up after that. I don't know if I've made that that error since then. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, so, all right, uh, let's start with actually looking back at the challenges of 2023 um, the industry, we've talked about this a lot at IBPA, um, the industry is evolving a lot in terms of business model. So I wanted to see if you can discuss what are the challenges with that, but then what are all the, also the positive aspects of that? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Um, you know, throughout the year, you and I will do some presentations about the state of the industry, especially with our regional association affiliates. And I was looking back at some early ones that we did last year when we were talking about trends for 2023 and seeing how we did in terms of predicting some of those trends. So um, actually, PW just released a um, statement today saying that print book sales, so that was one of our predictions, which is that print book sales would decline. And they did, but interestingly, they didn't decline as much as we thought they would. So they only declined by about 3% in 2023, which was really good news. And I would say overall, the picture of publishing was more positive throughout the year. I think people were really looking at that long COVID hangover, and there was a lot of fear in the industry that we would see steep declines. But publishers really expected a lot of that and shored up their business um, and did a good job, I think, of sort of managing expectations, managing um, inventory better. The supply chain has started to get um, cleaned up a little bit. So overall, I would say 2023 looked more positive than I think we all had expected. Yeah. And can I just ask, this is such a huge other issue, but you know how there's always like print sales or this and that, right? But I mean, aren't they not, are they even really getting all of the sales? I mean, what where are they getting that data? Because it's it's always from the same places, but aren't book sales happening that they're not even tracking? Yeah, it's a really good point. And I was actually preparing this week for a presentation I'm doing at NYU next week. And we'll be talking about data. And I always start any kind of presentation where I talk about data, data with the caveat that the our industry has no good clean way of capturing all sales that occur. And the reason that is the case is because typically when we're talking about book sales, we're talking about trade book sales. 
And those trade book sales, which is your independent bookstores, um, big box stores like Target or Walmart, um, other small retail s- stores, or um, even online sales like Amazon, BNN.com, bookshop.org, all of those are captured through Circana BookScan. But the reality is that there's a whole other piece of the industry, which are bulk sales, direct-to-consumer sales from authors and publishers, and um, sales that just occur in any kind of in-person transaction that the publisher may be handling directly, which never get captured. So I would say a good rule of thumb is typically what you see through BookScan and what you see reported likely makes up about 85, I would say somewhere between 75 and 85% of total book transactions that are occurring across the industry. Yeah, because like last year in person, I sold a million copies of my book, but nobody's tracking that and it's unfair. Um, Okay, I wanted to ask about then that we talked about business models. So things like hybrid publishers, how that's evolving, how that in terms of like people that were once like traditional trade publishers, and then they actually are adjusting their business to also do hybrid publishing, that kind of stuff. And like what your thoughts are in terms of like, is that a good trend? And how do you feel about all that? So to answer the last question first, I would say 100%, yes, it is a good trend. Um, And the reason I say that anyone who's heard me talk before, you've probably heard me say something around the fact that the traditional business model for publishing is broken, that the way that we used to acquire, produce, and distribute books um, does not allow much room for profit. And for any publisher who's looking really looking to run a business, it's just so challenging to acquire books in the advance against a royalty model, meaning that you're paying the author up front. It's kind of like organized gambling, right? You're paying for the author to um, allow you to publish that book up front. You're taking on all of the design, editorial, production costs, the inventory costs, the distribution costs. So when the publisher takes all of that on up front, it, and then they're projecting what might sell for that book, it becomes incredibly hard, especially as we see those rising costs to produce books, to actually run a profit. And because of the way that returns work in our industry, you have to be able to have a certain amount of cash on hand to protect your business. So all of that to say, unless you're incredibly affluent, you're incredibly well-funded, or you're part of a larger organization, that model needs to change. And so what we've seen in the industry, and it's been growing over time, but um, really in the past year, we've seen it accelerate, are these what I like to call emerging business models. So There's hybrid publishing, um, which is a very legitimate and um, financially successful way to publish books, but sometimes it can get a bad rep in our industry. I consider that part of emerging business models. And essentially what that means is that there are different ways to fund your business and fund the production and the creation of a book up front. And you may be asking the author to take on some of those costs up front, but on the back end where you're sharing in the income or sharing in the profit, that's where it sort of evens itself out. So as long as there's a mechanism for distribution, no matter how you fund the model up front, you're sharing in an equitable way with the author, the content creator, and there's transparency in that process, then you're talking about a 
legitimate publishing model. And I think that's yeah. just important to let people know. Yeah. And I know that IBPA has been working really hard on this new IBPA guide to publishing models and author pathways. Uh, I don't know if you want to say something briefly about that. We're going to be announcing that in a lot of ways, but. I do. I'm glad you brought that up. It's a project that I'm really um, proud of our committees, our board and our staff for working on this year. It's something that when I first came on board, there was a lot of talk about the confusion in the marketplace and how can IBPA help to create clarity and transparency, not only for our members, but for the industry and also for authors who um, sometimes are in jeopardy of working with a bad actor or who may think maybe working with a good actor, but they're not getting what they thought they were getting. So we wanted to create a document that would really allow for the industry to better understand the different segments of the publishing market and what each one does. So we're going to be launching the document probably in mid-February, but um, on January 10th, which is next week, we're going to be doing a member a webinar for both members and non-members to come and learn a little bit more about these pathways and to actually provide their input so that by the time we publish that document that everyone has had a, the, a chance to review it, but also to um, add their thoughts and opinions so that we feel like it's really reflective of the industry at large. So very excited to share that with you. And it's been beautifully designed. So I hope mm -hmm. you will enjoy it when it comes out. Yeah. Okay. So on that note, I did want to ask, uh, we, we, you know, funding's always a problem for publishers and bringing in revenue. And uh, I know that, for example, trade publishers adding in some hybrid publishing aspects uh, is a good way to bring in revenue. Um, and in fact, in that note, um, IBPA is working on these types of contracts, like sample contracts, because that's a whole new way of you know dealing with your authors. So um, you're going to need a new contract. But um, what are some other ways that publishers can get funding so they can get through 2024 uh, financially uh, viably? That's a really good question, and I'm going to answer it. But first, I just want to go back to the sample contracts. Um, there are a lot of things that are impacting contracts right now. As you said, we're seeing emerging business models where there may be different pieces within the contract, both for the author and the publisher, in terms of how funds are allocated. So you're going to want to look at that. The other thing I just want to note is that and we can talk about AI later, possibly, if we get to that subject today. But um, when you're looking at your contracts, both from an author perspective and or from a publisher perspective, you want to make sure that you're protecting yourself in terms of ensuring that the content that an author is delivering has been entirely produced by that author. And from an author's perspective, they want to ensure that their intellectual property is protected. So we're going to be updating our sample contracts on the IBPA website to reflect both the changes in terms of emerging business models, but also the changes in terms of AI. So I just wanted to make that note. Um, will you ask me the other question again now? Because I, I... Yeah, yeah, no, of course. Um, so that in terms of funding, uh, are there ways that publishers can get funding? Yeah, so that's a tricky one. Um, you know, publishers fund their businesses in a couple of different ways. I will say if you're an author publisher, even a small publisher starting out and you're in this to run a legitimate 
viable business as opposed to just publishing a book in addition to something else that you do, you want to start by looking at your resources and your funding. Um, I would not encourage you to just put a book out there before you really look at a full and comprehensive PL for your business and understand where those funds are coming from because you need to have cash reserves. You need to have reserves so that if you get hit with bigger returns than you think you did, or something comes up in your business, that you're able to sustain your business over time. So I highly recommend that no matter where you're starting at in your business, that you absolutely look at making sure that you have funds. In terms of where those funds come from, um, small businesses fund themselves in a couple of different ways. Um, Traditionally, you know, they may go to a bank and ask for a loan. They may reach out to investors. Um, But something that's become really popular, both on a title-by-title, campaign-by-campaign basis, but also for a publishing company at large, is to look at crowdfunding. And so crowdfunding is a great way to find micro-investors who believe in the mission of either your book or your organization or your brand, who are excited about the content, who may receive something like early access to that content in return for helping to fund or crowdsource funding up front for that organization. So there is a method to it. We do have resources at IBPA to help to understand how to do crowdfunding successfully. I think we've done a couple of webinars on it. Um, And actually, the woman who runs the publishing division at Kickstarter, her name is Oriana Lockhart. She's going to be speaking at Publishing University this year. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that'll be in April, uh, the end of April. So definitely check that out. Um, and then also, um, I personally, for my second book, did do a Kickstarter campaign. And what I loved was it got those people who gave money invested, literally invested in the book, made them more excited about it. And then I asked them when they, because some of the rewards for getting the physical copy of the book, when they got it to post on social media, holding the book up, look what I got. You know, it, it, you create this fan base of really dedicated people and it, it it's it's really fun um but it's a lot of work and you got to make sure in advance that if you do it for like a month or something like throughout the entire month you have ideas of how you're going to keep the momentum going because it starts strong and then you're like oh it just gets quiet um so but anyway there's a lot to talk about there uh, also there's the u.s small business administration um at www.sba.gov. People should check that out as well. It's a good resource. Um, Okay, let's talk about market access. So this is a big issue for publishers, but can you just kind of define what we mean by market access? Are we talking about distribution? Like what what does that mean? Right, so at a very simple, on a very simple level, it means how are you getting your book into the hands of a book buyer in whatever format, wherever they want to purchase that book. So there are lots and lots of different ways, obviously, that we can do that. And there are strengths and challenges to each of those different channels. Um, and so one thing, I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit about PLs today. I, I try to think of a few um, areas in publishing that I want to champion in the coming year when I sort of set my intentions for 2024. And this year, one of them is um, continuing to talk about the importance of the PL. 
So for everyone who already knows or who doesn't know, PL is a profit and loss statement. And typically when we look at that, we're looking at, you know, here's how much it's going to cost to manufacture the book. Here's how much the marketing budget is. Here's how much it costs for editorial and design. Here are my distribution fees. And you look at it across the board for one title. As we think about market access, we need to start looking at an individual PL, sort of like a micro view of those PLs for every different market. And the reason for that is a couple of different reasons. One, um, manufacturing costs may not always look the same. So one way to access the market, um, maybe to put your book through a platform like Ingram Spark or KDP. And so those books are then printed on demand based on consumer demand. The great thing about those platforms is that your book is going to be available for sale online and it will be available sort of in real time. So you don't have to worry about inventory management. However, your cost per unit is really high. And so you're taking a chance that you may end up with returns that could disrupt that PL. So when you're running that PL, that's going to look different from maybe you have an opportunity to do speaking engagements or to do book festivals or reach readers directly in person. In that case, you may be able to do a short run of books and that cost per unit is going to look like less than what it would be if you were doing uh, print on demand titles. So all of that to say, when we look at points of access into the market, whether it's going through a traditional distributor, whether it's putting the book um, for sale through a print-on-demand platform, whether you're printing books yourself and selling them directly through your website or through um, or through in-person events, you want to make sure you have a really strong handle on that PL and the cost of getting the book into the market. Yeah, and um, is, you talked about book returns. Um, that's a big problem for indie publishers. So. Um, do you have any ideas, not necessarily things that, you know, tomorrow that can be solved, but like what's something that can be done about book returns that would really help publishers um, like actually, you know, get beyond uh, like losing sometimes thousands of dollars um, out of nowhere? Well, the simple answer would be that as an industry, we would stop taking returns. <laughs> if we didn't have returns, then Publishers could more effectively manage their business. Retailers could more effectively purchase and make sure that they were able to sell through inventory that they had. They would um, project for the sales that they might see more effectively. And from an environmental and sustainability perspective, we would cut down waste by at least probably 50% of what we see currently in our industry. So not taking returns anymore would be the ideal state. We know that that's not likely um, and not realistic. So what I would say, you know, when I worked at Workman, Peter Workman always had a saying when we as salespeople would get frustrated because there weren't enough books and there were no books in the warehouse and somebody wanted books. And he would say, it's always better to chase the sale. And as a salesperson, I used to get really frustrated by that. And, you know, if you look at if a book's not available through Amazon, yeah, sure, that sale may be going someplace else. But that's better than having to take a return of 500 units up to a year after you printed those books. And that return potentially capsizes your business. Yeah. So I'm not saying 
Don't print enough books, but really be careful about projections. Don't over project. And if you run out of books, you can always print more or you can have books in a print on demand um, program, but also be printing books um, digitally. So there are different ways that you can manage your business, but really keep an eye on the inventory and don't overprint. And if for inventory, like where's the best place for a publisher to keep their books? I mean, you know, should they have their own facility or are there facilities that um, can do it uh, for good, good rates? So that is such a hard question to answer because <laughs> so many different ways to manage your business. So a lot of um, small publishers who are just starting out may exclusively print books on demand, meaning they set up all of the metadata and the files through KDP, through Ingram Spark, through BookBaby, through other platforms that will distribute that information. And the books are only printed when there's a consumer order for it. Um, that's great in terms of not having to manage your inventory, but from the perspective of scaling your business, it makes it really hard to scale because your cost of goods is so high that it can be really hard to turn a profit. Um, and also there may be markets that you want to get into like the educational market or other specialty retail markets, and you can't make the books available in short quantities in that way. So there are companies that do um, what we call 3PL or logistics, where they'll bring inventory in, hold your inventory, and then they can manage the back end of receiving an order either from you or potentially through an EDI um, transmission, which will come from a retail trading partner. They're not generating orders for you. You still need to go out and make those sales happen, but they can handle the logistics behind the scenes. And that's a great way to reduce your costs. Even when you include pick, pack, and ship, it's often less expensive to do digital short run or do an offset and work with a third party. If you're small and you're just starting out and you know how to do it, you can order books yourself and bring them in. And you know, I know publishers who have been very successful managing sales and shipments out mm. out of the garage mm. um you do need the right systems to do that but it's it's feasible to a certain degree well we're talking about book returns so then of course that brings up bookstores and i there are a lot of any publishers i know our members reach out all the time asking how do i get my book into a bookstore so i wanted to ask uh, kind of the bigger question of not just how you not really how you get your book into a bookstore but is that even feasible for any publishers or is it, are there other options that might be better? I'm sure some of you have heard this statistic from me as well, but typically, historically, even for really strong selling books that may be coming from larger publishers, no more than 6%, 8% maybe of those sales are coming through independent bookstores. So when you think about your book and your ability to get books into the hands of readers that you know you want that book, spending a lot of time thinking about how are you going to get your book into every independent bookstore across the country is probably not a good use of your time because the answer is you're not. Um, a couple of things that are important, if trade sales are important to you, 
You must have a way of transmitting your metadata, your book data to systems like Ingram and Edelweiss, which is owned by Above the Tree Line. Those are systems where people are going to look to order books. So it's almost as important to have the physical books as it is to have the metadata and be able to transmit the metadata because otherwise people are not able to discover your books. So that's really important. Um, we at IBPA do have some discounts for working with companies like Ingram and Edelweiss. So if you're a member, I would highly recommend that you check those out. Um, but, you know, again, it's really critical for you to be making sure that your metadata is clean and correct and that you're getting it out into those places Beyond that, I would say, where are your readers congregating? And can you sell to them directly? It's something that we don't think about a lot. But if you can bring your readers, if you can engage with them wherever they're congregating, whether that's online or in person, and you can encourage them and create strength in your brand to come to your website and purchase through you, one, you can probably give them a better discount on the book or some other type of premium or value. And two, then you've captured their information and you've captured a customer. And if something goes wrong, you can work with them directly and you're able, better able to manage your sales. So if there's one thing I would encourage our listeners to think about in the coming year is how can you increase your consumer direct sales? Yeah. And I know uh, IBPA does have multiple things we're working on in that capacity as well. Um, okay. So one of the Neil, well, actually, do you want to mention the consumer marketing, the Ingram consumer marketing? I mean, yeah, yeah that would be great. Um, so IBP has been looking, we've had a couple of projects with various organizations to help our members with consumer direct sales, but none of them have been super successful. And so it's something that Lee and I have been working on together to try to figure out who can we partner with. And Ingram last year, they've, they've actually been working for years on building a robust consumer base that is um, vertically based, meaning based in genre or areas of interest. And so they spent about, gosh, six or seven years just building a consumer base of book readers, which is one of the things that makes their consumer audience so unique is that these are verified book buyers and book readers. And so they've been building that base up. And then last year, they launched their consumer services um, offerings. And so we reached out to them and said, hey, is there a way for us to partner with you? And so we're going to be launching a few consumer services that will be powered by Ingram's platform this year, um, actually later in the month. And it will be um, an opportunity for our members to tap into Amazon's verified book buyers, again, by vertical through email blasts that will go out to book purchasers who have said, yes, I am interested in reading and purchasing romance novels, or I am interested in reading and purchasing thrillers. Um, so they'll be divided by genre and then there'll be one um, email that goes out that's to a general book buying audience. And then the other thing that we're working with partnering them on is um, ad campaigns. So a lot of you probably know how hard it is to run a digital ad campaign. Even if you're an expert, it can be really challenging to see that return on investment. So Ingram has developed a way for um, users 
be able to cap how much you want to spend. So you can say, this is my budget. Please don't go above this. And then they will run those ads again with verified book buyers on your behalf. So there are a couple of different things that are happening. We're working with our friends at Ingram on launching those. And I'm really excited to get them out because we've been looking for a way to help our members to reach readers directly for a while. Yeah. And I know that um, that's something that publishers do ask us about a lot. You know, I just, you know, because we were just talking about some of the struggles with going through certain other markets, it's like, okay, well, you know, readers are out there hungry for books. They just don't know they exist. Um, so uh, you mentioned AI earlier. It's one of the hottest topics that came out in 2023. Um, where do you see AI going in 2024 in terms of like, um, you know, should publishers be embracing it more? I mean, ChatGPT was one of those things that everybody was talking about. What are the things they should embrace and um, what are the things they may want to be maybe leery of? Right. So when we talk about AI, there are two separate issues um, that are interconnected, obviously, but we can talk about copyright protection um, and what publishers need to do to protect themselves. Um, and when we talk about that, we're typically talking about generative AI. So generative AI is when learning machines, learning AI ingests copyrighted material to then output a product that may be similar or a book that may be similar to what it's learned from. And the concern there, of course, is that you're taking copyrighted material without the permission of the copyright owner, ingesting it and producing something but that potentially competes with the original product. So that's sort of the heart of the concern around copyright. And we're just starting to see this sort of enter the legislative space. There's been a lot of work done by the Authors Guild on behalf of copyright holders and by the Copyright Alliance. So we work closely with those two groups as well as the AAP just to stay apprised of what's happening in the copyright protection space. Uh, we have an advocacy committee at IBPA that is very aware and on top of that work. And so our hope is to create an AI resource center that helps to address those concerns and tell people where they can go for more information. And we'll include, as I mentioned before, an update to the author and publisher agreements that will include language around AI. So we're doing some work there. On the Are robots... Are robots going to be running the AI Resource Center because they could they could be you know putting things in there? <laughs> well, it's funny you ask that because the next thing I was going to say is that the the positive side of AI is that can help you, you can, it can help you more efficiently run your business. And knowing how resource strapped we are here at IBPA, I think that we should adopt some robots to be able yeah. to help create that AI center. That All would. Right. Be ensure that we are no longer toiling into the wee hours of the morning. So no, I'm maybe always... they can bring us sandwiches too. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Can we get one of those AI robots that <laughs> is a gourmet chef? On the okay. Done. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so the other side of AI, of course, is that there are tools that are being created, which are very legitimate tools that can help us from with everything from creating production efficiencies within our organization to helping us market online in a smarter way. 
Um, and so one of the tools that I've been talking about because I've been, I met with their founder at Frankfurt and I've just been really taken with their platform so far is a company called Shimmer. So Shimmer is an AI platform that helps publishers to manage their digital advertising budget, which we were just talking about and saying it can be hard to do that sometimes. So the concept behind the product is, um, it's a low monthly fee. I think it's about $70. Don't quote me on that. I think it's around $70 a month. Um, and you put your title into the program, the AI system will review all of the content. And then based on that, it creates ads, which have both copy and images that have been created. And then it places those ads based on what it identifies as being the target consumer, the target reader, where that target reader will exist and what language based on the book will appeal to that reader, both from a literal and from an emotional perspective. And then it tracks those ads over time. So there's a threshold of expectation about the success and conversion that those ads should see. And if it's not seeing that, it will automatically adjust them. So that's an example of a way that, wow, for all of us who have spent a ton of money on digital advertising and felt like we don't really know what we're doing, um, it's a cost-effective way to allow AI to be able to run those ads for you in a relatively safe and low cost way. So that's one cool platform that I've seen recently. Another one is an AI tool that's meant to help publishers with acquisition. So a lot of publishers will receive, you know, thousands of manuscripts that come through the door. How do they assess them, those manuscripts um, based on their own mission and goals and revenue goals? And so this is an AI tool that will help with that process, which is pretty cool. And then also marketing copy, you know, marketing copy, especially copy that's going out through our metadata system should be updated on a regular basis. And sometimes that can be challenging. It's hard to keep up from a time perspective. And so now there are tools that can help with that as well. So we're definitely seeing ways that AI, especially in the marketing side of things, AI tools can actually help us to run our businesses more efficiently. And I think we'll see more of that in the coming year. Yeah. Um, well, also AI narrated books, audiobooks. I mean, um, yep. that's the whole thing. And it's complicated because one, um, audiobook companies, uh, they produce really beautiful um, audiobooks. Um, but with all of that work they put into it comes a cost. And so now people are trying to use AI narration to, to save some money. Um, and, you know, well, what are your thoughts about like, well, one, obviously, you know, those voiceover actors, that's a very difficult thing when a whole business of, you know, like a job suddenly becomes like moot, where suddenly, you know, it's like not needed anymore. Um, and yet these people are very talented and bring a lot of personality to these books. So what are your thoughts about just how AI narrated audiobooks might change the market? Yeah, I think all of the above, you know, um, we've seen audiobooks grow by double digits. In fact, I think this is the first year where audiobooks have slowed down slightly. slightly. I don't have the percentage in front of me, but I just read a piece saying that audiobooks this year, the growth slowed. So I think it's like right under 10%. But we, we've seen, been seeing high double digit growth among audiobooks over the past decade. Um, and so 
the challenge for independent publishers, of course, to your point, is that it's not cheap to create an audiobook and to do it well. And for those of you who are audiobook lovers, I know I am, I listen to them regularly. If an audiobook isn't read well, even if I want to read the book, I I won't. I won't get past the first five minutes. So the reason I bring that up is I think right now we're still in a place where AI hasn't quite caught up from a commercial perspective to create a competitive um, product to what a professional human narrator can provide. Um, But I don't think we're far off from that. And so on one hand, it will create efficiencies and economies of scale for independent publishers who may not have been able to enter the space up until now. How we protect the people whose livelihood depends on narrating those books as professionals um, is yet to be seen. And I certainly don't have the answer to that. But when I think about some of the fabulous narrators that I've listened to, even in the past year, um, it's certainly an area that I hope we can find a way to protect and that we can continue to allow those people to make a living doing what is a very laudable and much needed task right now in the industry. Yeah, well, because I just realized the AI narrated podcasts, I'm about to be out of a job. Y'all are going to be like, you know what, Christopher? <laughs> I think we have something else to do. Yeah, and also your voice. We've been meaning to tell you uh, <laughs> a little, little uh, cringy. Okay, um, so I wanted to ask a really cool thing that IBPA was part of. Um, there's a lot of new BISAC code changes. So uh, can you tell us uh, why why was it important? What are the updates and why was it important for IBPA to, to help out with that? I'm so glad you asked that question. Um, this is a project that is really close to my heart for a couple of reasons. I currently sit on the Book Industry Study Group board, and the BISG is the organization that is responsible for BISAC codes. And I've been involved with that committee on and off for probably the last 15 years. And boy, it is a ton of work to keep those BISAC codes updated. And it's being done by a relatively small group of individuals. When you look at the scale of the publishing industry, and also potential readers. And so the challenge is that in in some ways, BISAC codes do an excellent job of making sure a book makes its way to the right shelf in a bookstore or can be discovered through Amazon. But when it comes to inclusivity, especially when we talk about communities that have been underrepresented in the publishing industry, BISAC codes are really have trailed and have um, not allowed for that discoverability among communities that want to be able to find books for and about their community. So as part of our DEI community, um, I'm sorry, our DEI committee at IBPA, we've had a working group um, that has been partnering with BISG and working with that BISAC committee at BISG to say, hey, can we broaden this tree? Can we change this tree of codes and the classification so that we're better representing the voices of Indigenous peoples because we're publishing all of these books and the codes that are available right now to classify those books are either one, inaccurate, or two, they're non-existent. And so in the last update to the BISAC codes, which we as the board just approved back in December and which is just released. 
I believe there are around 250 changes that have been made, and a lot of them are related to the work that IBPA's um, working group under the DEI committee did. And I will tell you, um, Wiley Barnes and Kirk Weisler in particular on our DEI committee, you know, they showed up to meetings, to BISAC code meetings at 6 a.m. Pacific time when they were starting at 9 a.m. Eastern time. They put in a ton of hard work and preparation. And the amazing thing is they've sort of paved the way for other communities to say, we want to do the similar work so that we can continue to evolve the BISAC codes and make them more inclusive. So I'm so proud of that work and um, really looking forward to 2024 because we're going to continue to partner with BISG. And hopefully next year at this time, we'll be talking about new BISAC codes that have been come out and ratified that will just make continue to make books more discoverable. Yeah. And um, that you mentioned the DEI committee and something that I just love about um, IBPA that the, the community is that it's really uh, having all these publishers and we're giving a space for them to connect and then helping them to change the industry. Like, you know, separately, I don't, they might not have had that connection to BISG, but, you know, we, they're the experts on what's needed in the industry as publishers. We connect them with the businesses. So, I'm not trying to plug IBP. I'm just, I just, in that moment, I realized like, wow, that's a really beautiful thing that we're able to really affect change. Um, and uh, these are things that are going to have a lasting impact on the industry. I mean, truly that example, just because I've spent so much time in the industry on the metadata side in particular, and the fact that we've been talking for the past, at least as long as I've been part of that committee about how we need to find a way to broaden the scope of those codes and that it was sort of, it happened at least to a certain degree coming out of one of the work of one of our committees is really an amazing thing. And you're right, you know, it's so great to have a good working group, uh, working relationship with the book industry study group and other associations. So that's part of our work too. And I don't always know that members think about that, but we partner really closely with the Authors Guild and the American Association of Publishers and the American Association of Literary Agents. So we're having those conversations, ABA, the ALA, we're having those conversations with those other associations all of the time so that we can keep a good eye on what's happening in different quarters of the industry and bring that back into our own programming here. Yeah, well, so I have so many other things to talk to you about, but we're kind of running short on time. I was going to talk to you about how publishers can manage their businesses better, uh, alternative revenue streams. I mean, we're going to solve all the problems out there. Um, but uh, unless you really desperately want to discuss one of those, um, we can uh, round things out here and end on a positive note. You let me know. You're the boss. I got to do what you say. <laughs> I know. Well, you know, I'm I'm a really tough boss. Um, I think that this is good. I don't want to overwhelm people with okay. information. I think we hit on some really important topics for this conversation. I love having these conversations with you and with all of our members. And there are going to be a lot of other opportunities throughout the course of the year to do that, whether it's attending PubU, our member roundtables, um, listening to other people besides me. Yammer on on the podcast. There are lots of different places where we touch on these topics. So um, I hope that you'll all, you all out there will stay tuned. And you know, we always say that members who 
show up and participate in a lot of the events that we do that are actually free, like the webinars, the roundtables, get the most out of their membership. So I would really encourage you as you're setting your intentions in 2024 to think about making some time in your schedule for some of our events. Yeah. And I know you, we talked in this podcast about how you know, complicated things are in the industry. Um, but I know that you a lot of times say that th these are actually, they're positive, even though it's complicated, there are positive things about the messiness. Um, and, and I know that like, for example, um, like you were, we were talking about market access, um, inclusion in ways that have never been before. So, um, you know, in terms of ending on a positive note, and by the way, at the office, everyone calls me Mr. Sunshine. So, yeah. Wait, you're not supposed to be surprised. You're at you're at the office. No, no of one believes me now. No one of course believes they me. do, Christopher. You didn't even you didn't even try to pretend. Um, so uh it's I just want to make sure that people, you know, know that you know that we we at I'm pair aware we have a lot of things we're working on to try to help make the publishing industry easier for our members. Um, but also anybody listening to this, like we're a resource. So if you have issues, come to us. We're here to help. Um, that's literally the reason we exist. Um, and, uh, and then you might even have solutions that we don't know about. So also come to us and say, Hey, I've been trying out this new program or, you know, whatever it is so that we can share that with our members, you know? So, um, it's, we just want to be kind of like a hub that's, you know, like all about like being helpful. Um, and, uh, I'm grateful to you for your leadership to make that happen. So, um, you know, thanks. It's like you said, it's been, uh, just over a year. So we got all these things we're working on. Yeah. I, I will lead, I will leave on a metaphor, which is, um, or maybe it's a simile in any event. I think of the publishing industry as one of the closest industries that is akin to what life is like in the sense that you want it to be ordered and you prepare for it and you think you're all set for it. But it's messy. The reality is it's messy and it evolves all of the time. And so you're in it for the joy of it. You know, any of us who are in publishing because we think we're going to make a lot of money, we know that that's not true 99.99% of the time. But we do this business because we we love it and we learn how to adapt in it. And that's one of my favorite things about independent publishers and author publishers too, is that we tend to be really scrappy and nimble. Um, and so I applaud all of you. And I would just say, continue to find joy in the messiness and the evolution of the industry, because that's actually where the fun is and the creativity. So that is my positive thought for you this. Maybe, maybe you're Mrs. Sunshine or Miss Sunshine. Uh, so there we go. Um, yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you, Andrea. Um, so uh, everyone, please, if you're listening, uh, make sure to check out all the benefits of IBPA membership at ibpa-online.org. And also make sure to subscribe to this podcast. We have the YouTube version. There's a video version. And then we have the version that's the audio where you can download everywhere. It drops the last Thursday of every month. Uh, we're grateful to you for listening. And we look forward to next month uh, sharing all kinds of information with you. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>